Welcome to this week's episode of Atlantic Tales when we visit the Clare Museum and hear about its history, recent archaeological projects and talks and later meet the museum's newly appointed education officer. Clare Museum's mission is to collect, preserve, interpret and display the material culture relating to the history of County Clare. This is done both in the museum building in Ennistown Centre and online as an educational resource and a socially inclusive cultural service for the people of Clare and for visiting tourists. Later we'll hear from former Keeper of Irish Antiquities at the National Museum of Ireland, Mary Cahill, archaeologist Graham Hull and Clare Museum's new education officer, Theresa Carmody O'Shea. The current museum in Ennis is not the first to have been established in the town. John Rattigan is curator of the Clare Museum. The first museum in Ennis was in Bindon Street and it opened in August 1965. We know it was there sometime into the 1970s. It could have been there as late as 1975 when Branch Library opened there, the De Valera Library opened in Harmony Row. The collection in Bindon Street, in the Bindon Street Museum, was then transferred to the library. So it was about 10 years in Bindon Street, uh, you had a museum there that was run by the Urban District Council. And then in the year 2000, the, in, well in the mid-1990s, the council acquired the building that the museum is in now from the Sisters of Mercy. And I think they needed to decide what they were going to do with that building. And at some point they decided to put in a visitor centre at one point. I've never come across any record of a decision to put a museum in here, but there was a, a proposal to put a visitor centre in here. And at some point that morphed into a museum. And I think it was because there was funding available for a museum rather than a visitor centre. And then the collection was transferred over here in the year 2000 when Clare Museum was established and opened. At what point then, John, did you become involved? In January 2000, uh, a position for a curator was advertised for the museum and I applied for it and I, I, I got the job. It started at the end of March 2000, 27th of March. So I'll be here 24 years this year. So I was charged really with, with just finishing the project. Uh, there had been a curator appointed before that for a year and he decided not to renew his, his contract and uh, he, he, he was... Um, a Clare man called Dominic Egan, who was the curator in Cavan County Museum at the time. And uh, so I took over then and, and we, my main job really at that time was to finalise a loan of objects from County Clare from the National Museum in Dublin. We succeeded in getting the largest collection of objects that they'd ever loaned out to another museum uh, on a long-term loan. Uh, at that time, I don't know if it's still the case, but that's the way it was at that time anyway. And was all that, John, about making an impression with a new facility and opening it up with a bang? Well, the idea was really it was to provide a, a tourist attraction within the town and to utilise the building, I, I presume, and, 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 and to, to, to help attract tourists into town. And of course, the National Museum had top quality materials, so once you had a museum curator in place, they were happy to negotiate a loan, you know, with strict terms and conditions to meet. And my job was to make sure we, we met those and, and we did it, you know. So, so basically mind the exhibits in the same way as they would be minded in Dublin. Exactly. Take yeah. care of them. Yeah, yeah. What do you remember of the big move then and the move from the library over here? Because we are talking about two different floor areas now. Oh, well, we are. We're talking about 
two different floor areas and, and two different um, museums, but the, the collection was simply transferred to my office in about May of 2000. Um, and I, they, I think they had taken it off display sometime before that and, and it was just moved over from Harmony Road to, to my office here in the building. And then we had to build the showcases in here in the galleries and, and then we put out the display of objects that we, we had selected. So not everything that we got from the library went on display here. Uh, some of them went into storage and there you'll find a lot of them photographed and up on, on our website. But John, you'd have a lot more exhibits stored away than you actually have on view here, so more than the public actually sees. Because we're a museum rather than say a visitor centre, we collect, and that's one of the def defining attributes of a museum is that we collect or we build a collection up and some museums some local authority museums have tens of thousands of objects in storage um, and the problem there is that how do you provide access to what's in storage and how do you let the public know about it so that they can ask for it to see these things if they want you know um, the problem with a museum gallery is that you know the physical space is, is limited and a museum gallery is kind of a, an, an 18th and 19th century way of providing access to the public to a museum collection. The modern way of doing it, and this is the way we've approached it now, is to use the internet. And we have our 19th century method of displaying our, our objects here in our galleries, which is exactly what people expect to see when they come here. But we've also put together a new website, designed a new website with the purpose of providing access to that collection that's in storage and shining a light on what's there. It's like the secret gallery of the museum in a way. It allows us to uh, cross-link collections so you'll have items that might, you'll have various collections with items say with the war from the War of Independence and we're able to bring them all together online in a way that you wouldn't be able to do yeah, uh, in the storeroom, for example, you know, so everything is catalogued. Yeah, it's everything's catalogued and, and, and photographed and all the rest of it. So the the online version now is 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 our new gallery, if you like. So people can now go online and and, and start to see what's in storage. Uh, we've about 760 items up. I reckon we've about 4,000 items altogether um, at the moment. And um, so as we catalogue, we'll, we'll be constantly adding to that and providing access. So you could be sitting in Swahili land in your, in your couch at home on a Saturday night and you could get online and you might decide, what do I have from Ennis Diamond in, county, in the County Museum in Clare? And you can look it up and see you know, from, from that far away, with information as well, not just a photograph, you know. And then if you wanted, if you were a student and you were doing a, a master's degree on something and you wanted to see a particular item, you could contact us and we could get it out uh, by appointment. That's the most efficient way of, of using it. So, so now, I, I think this Clare Museum would be kind of a blended institution in a sense that you'll have your physical building with the galleries and the showcases and the activities that, we do, that we'll be doing and all that kind of stuff, but you will also have uh, the online presence of the website and, um, and the kind of access that, that brings. You know, you can access it 24-7, seven days a week, all throughout the year, anywhere in the world. What then, John, is available to see within the physical building of the Clare Museum these days? Well, we tell the history of County Clare over a period of 6,000 years, and we use that, we do that using the, these authentic artefacts, including a very large loan of objects from the National Museum in Dublin, archeological objects, uh, and it's available over two galleries. The exhibition is split up into teams, 
So you have the themes of earth, power and faith on the ground floor. So the earth section would look at the relationship clear people have had with the land from the Stone Age right up until you know, the mid-1950s or mid-20th mid century in, in, in Clare. The power section takes a look at the emergence of political elites during the Bronze Age and, you know, it goes right up again to Daniel O'Connell in the 19th century and uh, Eamon de Valera in the 20th century, War of Independence and that kind of thing. And Faith examines the Im impact and the relationship that Clare people had with Christianity and uh, that, that covers the ground floor. And then upstairs we have a section called Water and Energy, two sections up there. Water takes a look at the concept of Clare as an island. Think of Clare as an island. On the one hand you have the Atlantic Ocean and on the other hand you have the River Shannon and it's just connected onto Ireland with a border with Galway. So it kind of looks at how that might have shaped the character of, of, of the county and, and people's lives. So we have a lot of items from bogs and shipwrecks. We have immigration is covered up there because you know people emigrated mainly across the sea by ship and we have some items to do with the Spanish Armada, fishing, the spa wells in, in Liston, Verna and that kind of thing. And then sport and music are covered in the energy section. So. so aside from what you will get from the National Museum on loan, where do you get your artefacts? You mentioned earlier that you collect, but where do you yeah. get your artefacts? Well, the bulk of our collection has come from the public and you know, what we try to do here in Clare is we want to build up a, a, a Clare collection of items that have been given to us by Clare people or people associated with Clare and that these objects will tell us a story about the lives that people in Clare had in the past. They don't have to be hero objects as they call them or they don't have to be really glamorous or outstanding items. They can be any object really provided it's in relatively good condition and it has a good story. So a good story is worth an awful lot more than the glamour of the object itself yeah. because that tells us something about the past. And that's what people connect with. People connect with those human stories. So it gives meaning to people and that's what we're looking for. That's what people in the, in the future will be looking for in relation to their past in, in County Clare. And know? do people reach out to you often, John, and say, I have this at home, it may turn out to be insignificant? Yeah. Well, they don't know that, but yeah. you would encourage them to ask? Oh yeah, I always encourage people to ask. So people sometimes, they, they, they email me in maybe a photograph or two of something, and they say, would I be interested in, in this? Or do I know what it is? Sometimes people are just inquiring, what is this item? And I may know what it is, or I may not, if I don't. I might have some ideas about who else you could talk to about it. And sometimes that leads to a donation. But normally, about once a year, I will put a, a press release out uh, trying to encourage people to donate items and giving them some ideas of the kind of things that we are interested in and some gaps that we have in our collection. And I find that, you know, people will read that maybe in January or February and they let it percolate away in their minds all year. And it could be October before you get a phone call and say, you had an article in the newspaper the other day, it's always the other day, but it's, it's actually <laughs> nearly a year ago, and you've been thinking about it, and, uh, and I, I have something at home that you might be interested in, you know, and they'll bring it in, and, and they may or may not donate it. But it comes, we depend on the community giving us objects from their their past, their, their family backgrounds, and with a story. The story is so important. If someone is digging around in their own garden, or a field and to find something which might have historical importance. Are they allowed to dig it up or what's the recommendation in that case? Under the National 
Monuments Amendment Act of 1994, any archaeological objects that people find are automatically state property. So it's quite different, say, from the United Kingdom, where there's a different law around these things and people can own it. There's a bit of finders keepers about yeah. it, but they have to go through their coroner, believe it or not, a coroner, and declare it treasure trove. It's different here. If you find something here, it, it goes to the state. That could mean that it could go straight to the National Museum in Dublin. But we're lucky here in Clare and that Clare Museum, one of the early things that, that I did uh, when we went in 2000 was to apply for Clare Museum to become a designated museum under this National Monuments Act, which would allow us to collect archaeological objects on behalf of the state. So if someone found something in their garden, they can they can give it here and it stays in Clare. It doesn't go up to the National Museum in Dublin. And these things are still being found all the time. A young man, a teenager in Newmarket on Fergus in Ballycar, found a cannonball in his garden and uh, there was great excitement about it. We were wondering how that cannonball got there. With the help of, of Martin Breen, the historian, we uh, established that in the 1650s, a Cromwellian army unit was stationed at a castle nearby. Uh, the castle no longer exists, but we reckon it was a couple of hundred metres away. Uh, we knew where exactly the site of it was and that it made perfect sense that this was obviously a cannonball that had been left behind. It's the great thing about social media. If I have a problem trying to figure out something, trying to find research on something or get information, I can just put it up on our Facebook page and ask people what's the answer to this problem. And it's fantastic. It's great. Uh, there's great interaction between the museum and the public in, in that respect. You know, that's a good example of it there. And there was huge excitement about it. We had TG Cahar down here doing a report on it for their news. And it's one of those moments where it's, a, it's one of the more exciting sides of my job. You know, I was quite, quite pleased with that. Of course, the museum is all about telling stories, telling the story of life and lives. Yeah. And one of your exhibits is the brilliant Queen of Anclore collection. That's on display here, are available for people to listen to here as well, John. It is, yeah. People associate museums with tangible cultural heritage, like objects and things like that. But the great thing about what Queen of Anclore have done is they have recorded the intangible cultural heritage. So that this is the, the oral history uh, and the information about how life was lived in the past. So, I mean, it's one thing, for example, to have a whole lot of really good butter making equipment in your museum and, and it's all in very good condition and everything but if nobody knows how to make the butter you kind of lose something in that you yeah. know so it's important to to record how the butter was made and and then not only that then you have all the little side stories to go with that because people are engaged with one another and that that was a that was a kind of a social event within a family as well butter making and the role that women had in that sometimes surplus butter would be sold in the market in limerick and that was an event going to limerick on a Friday or something like that to sell it at the market. So there's a whole lot of other information you can gather in it. And Queen of Anclar collects an awful lot of that, and that's really, really valuable. It's no coincidence that it's next to the fireplace. <laughs> or is it? <laughs> well, it, it's actually, do you know what? It is a coincidence, but it's a very happy, serendipitous yes. uh, coincidence, you know. But the fireplace, of course, that we have here, it, it's uh, you know, the heart of the house was, was, was the centre of the, of, of, of the home, where a lot of the stories that we hear in, in, in our... Uh, interactive here um, would have been, could have been told, you know. People can come in, sit on the bench, put on the headphones and select yeah, yeah. whether it's customs, continuity yeah. and change, entertainment and pastime. This yeah. is a great facility to have here. It's, it's brilliant and you know what, it's one of the most popular items. People spend more time in front of this than they do in front of anything else in the museum. And uh, when you get particularly 
Americans and uh, British people, you're, you sometimes you forget they're there, they're quietly listening, yeah. and you forget, and then you hear some some laughter or something out of the blue. And uh, they love the accents, they love the challenge of understanding the different accents and the expressions, and also the actual real stories that will probably shed some light on their their ancestry as well, you know, on the lives of their ancestors. But before the couple got married, they'd be the picking of the gander. That was the parents of the lady would come to the parents of the gent and find out what he had, walk his land and find out how many cows he had. And if he was kind of cute enough, he'd add in a few cows from the neighbours. That has been done. And they would, uh, the two old men then would go to the pub and they would seal it with a drink. It didn't matter whether she suited him or not, or whether he suited her or not. If the dadass said, if the match was made, the match was made. So was I remember distinctly my cousin. She lived in, uh, she was in England, and she came home from England, and she didn't want to go back to England anymore. And her match was made with a man that she never met, until she met him at the altar. The day, be- this is a fact, the day before the match was made, she went to Kilrush to go to confession. And he was coming out the confession door box and she was gone in and they did not know each other. I know and I can prove that they were the happiest couple I ever went into. I used to go back there for Saturday nights and stay there behind, you know, learning to dance the set. And, uh, you know, they were really, they had no family of their own. They were a really, really genuine, happy couple. Earlier you mentioned De Valera and one of the newer exhibits, John, yes. here is Eamon De Valera's car. Yes, Eamon De Valera's 1947 Dodge. A car that uh, seems to mean an awful lot to, to a, a generation of, of Clare people, Ennis people in particular, because he would drive it down to the showgrounds in Ennis in the 1960s and as president of Ireland um, for the Ennis show and he, he, he would give his prizes, he would give the prizes. And every child in, in Ennis seems to have been near the car, perhaps sat in it, I don't know, but they, they all remember it anyway, you know. So you get a lot of people just come in here to see the car, they talk about it and they leave and then they come back again with someone else, you know. It's a great... Um, a great thing for uh, grandparents with their grandchildren talking about, you know, they're, yeah. they're able to, it, it sparks a conversation between grandparents and their grandchildren. They can say, I saw this car yeah. come down to Ennis, yeah. whatever, yeah. and it has been beautifully restored. They have I think. a story, you know yes. what I mean? So, yes. yeah. It looks fantastic. I know yeah. that I think Colin Ryan and Park were involved in some of the restoration work, yes. but it is very significant. Where was it before here? Previously, it was stored in a purpose-built building behind the library in Harmony Row, but it was difficult to see it there. Um, it's more prominent here now, I think. It's much easier to see it. Uh, you can see it from outside the building, but how significant uh, do you believe it is because it's in the centre of town, it's far more accessible than it was and it is a great piece of history. Well, it's a huge piece of history. You know, it's great watching people enter in here and they see the car and their faces light up. It's not what they're expecting in a lot of cases. And, um, you know, you, you get all kinds of different people. There are people who remember this car, Americans who remember a Dodge drive like this, that driving in, in America, on American roads. 
and they'll be intrigued. What is that doing here? What's the story with that? And, and then just modern age, modern day young children are fascinated because it's a different shape. It's quite big. They got white wall tires like they have on some of the children's uh, cartoons, uh, trying Toy Story and yes. stuff like that. And, and, and it's just a big object. It's the biggest item in the museum. Uh, it's a bit of a showstopper, you know. You had to find space for it. This is this is the tourist office. You remember uh, when the museum opened many years ago? There was one whole section that was was a tourist office. I had a shop in it and all the rest of it. Gradually, that has changed over the years. Uh, Shannon Developments had a shop in it, but when Falch Ireland took over, they didn't have shops, so they had a lot of excess space in here. And then, of course, in their wisdom, Falch Ireland decided that it would be best to only have a tourist office that was open from June to the end of September, which meant that this area was basically deserted for much of the year. So we needed a new space for the car, and this was this was this was it. I can only imagine. American or any other tourist walking in that door to get information about Ennis yes. and seeing this. It is, yeah, it's the showstopper. When, when the tourist office is open and there's a service here, it's a conversation starter between the, the tourist office staff and, and the, the tourists and it ultimately always seems to lead to a visit right inside yeah. the museum. Now we've lost that, we've lost that now for much of the year, from October until the end of March and the end of May. We don't have people coming in here looking for tourism information anymore, or not, certainly not the same numbers because you don't have that human element here, there's no staff. So that has meant that we've now had to take a strategic look on how we run the museum and, uh, and it's going to involve a kind of a pivot away, not away from tourism, but a pivot towards something. Uh, something else and that's going to be education. We're going to try and develop the museum more as an education resource, try and get the public, the local public involved in it much more. And because of the kind of tourists that you get in here, you get uh, independent cultural travellers. These are people who will hire cars, they spend more money, they tend to be better off and better educated than, than, than most, that kind of the top percent in the population. Those are the kind of people that come to museums and they're looking for an authentic experience. And what's more authentic than a museum that's been used by the local community? They want to, be, to, to come here. So that will help us, I think, build up our visitor figures again post-COVID because we're still behind where we were before COVID. So going forward now, education is going to be a really important part of our job here. We're going to be developing the museum as an educational resource, an educational hub that can be used by the community. Coming up, we'll meet Clare Museum's newly appointed education officer and hear about an archaeological dig carried out on behalf of the museum at Derry Boy near Crushing. In Ennis, County Clare, the Minister for Local Government, Mr Tully, has opened a new library and museum which is housed in a former Presbyterian church in Harmony Street. In the museum, the exhibits include an ornate door salvaged from a ship off the Spanish Armada which was wrecked off the Clare coast, while lovers of Percy French's songs may well be interested in the wheelbarrow and spade which were used by Charles Stuart Parnell when he cut the first sod of the now vanished but immortal West Clare Railway. The museum also incorporates a special reference section on County Clare. Welcome back to Atlantic Tales. Clare Museum is situated in part of the old Convent of Mercy in Ennis Town Centre. It wasn't the first museum in Ennis, however, with records showing there was a facility in the town in the 1960s. 
A new museum and library were officially opened in Ennis in 1975, but the collection there was later moved to the site just off O'Connell Street in the town centre. The newest member of the team at Clare Museum is Teresa Carmody O'Shea. Teresa worked previously for almost 20 years with Clare County Libraries and has joined the museum as Education Officer. Going forward, education will be a key priority for the museum. I mean, in fairness, this is a new role for the museum and for me, so I'm learning as I go. But I hope to, to bring the museum to a wider audience. There's lots of visitors throughout the year, particularly in the summertime. But for me, I suppose my goal is to bring awareness to more local people and to the schools around the county and to adult learners and to the diverse community that's now living in and around the environs of Clare. So I'll be engaging with schools, primary and secondary, hopefully with third level as well, uh, particularly in Limerick with the, with the Limerick College of Art and Design. Um, there's, there's lots of potential there to, to interact with them and I hope to go to the Limerick and Clare Education Centre here in Ennis and of course we have the Clare Education Support Centre here as well. There's this massive potential, I mean this isn't something that's going to be done in the first week or two of, of my job. So in the next six to 12 months, I hope to make lots of new connections and bring lots of people to the museum who may not have been here before and may not be aware of the potential of the museum for educational organisations. If you were to give an example of what, of what use will be to them, particularly with, I suppose, secondary school students. I mean, only this week gone by, we had two junior SIR classes in from Ennis Community College because as part of their curriculum, their junior SIR curriculum, they, they have to visit a museum and where better to go than on your doorstep and they have to answer questions then on their visit and, and it's part of their curriculum to do that. Primary school children do projects all the time as do the secondary school students leaving certs so if they do history they have their specific topic that they have to do a project on. We are a resource for that. We have a fountain of information here and of course everything is online now as well so you know they can come here and see it in person and then go away decide what they want to do it on and find every, all the information online as well and we're always here as the support for them as well. If you are going to a museum, it's more than worthwhile because you're seeing tangible elements of the past, of history, of our own lives. Coming here will be very important going forward for education. Absolutely. And I mean, despite the fact that everything is now digitised and online, there's nothing like doing things hands-on and seeing things for yourself in person. And coming to the museum, there's so many exhibitions here. There are so many, I mean, from the tiniest of, of things like a little stone found somewhere in Clare to like something massive like a that you'll see if you look up upstairs on the ceiling, you know. And this is this is their heritage. Whether you're born in Clare or whether you're, you've come from somewhere else and you live in Clare, this is their heritage, this is their local area. And, and I think, how could it not be of benefit to them to, to realise or to, to learn what has come from their past? And, and I just think it's, it's, it's an invaluable resource, really. And yeah, absolutely, it's a day out from school, yeah. but it's a fun day out, you know. Sometimes kids or teenagers will hear the word museum and go, oh, yawn, you know, but, but things have changed, you know. And, and that's, I suppose that's what I'm here to do, is to make it relevant and, and exciting and fun for them and something they're going to want to do. And we have to remember that this is the only facility of its kind in Clare. It is the Clare Museum, but open to everybody and you'd be hoping maybe Teresa that schools 
that are in the further reaches of the county would take the, the benefit of coming in to visit the museum. And, and that's part of my job now, Pat, is to go and engage with those schools and entice them in. And, um, and I mean, this facility is free. It's free to everybody, not just schools that want to come on school tours. You can walk by here any time of the day, any time of the year and walk in and, and it's, it's self-guided, which is great. But obviously when, when schools and classes come here, we'll be here to, on hand to introduce them and for any questions they have and sort of guide them. But, but generally it, it's self-guided. And so, yeah, I, I'm, whether I go in person or John goes or we, we contact them, you know, via email or whatever, I'm going to reach out to every school in the county eventually and, and invite them all, make sure that they know they're all welcome. And as you say, particularly those that aren't close to the town. And yeah, I hope that some of those schools will even choose it as their school tour. I was going to ask you what a school would do to make contact, but you're actually going to go to the trouble of reaching out to the schools yourself. Yes, yes, I hope to be very proactive. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be lovely for me to sit back and wait for them to contact me. But no, I mean, because look, at schools have a lot to do. Teachers, teachers have a busy lives and busy schedule as it is. So no, I'm going to contact them. I'll contact them all as a group in general and then and then I'll give them the information as to how to contact me personally and and we can set up individual tours and visits and things like that. So no, I'll definitely be getting in touch with them myself and make sure that they know we're here, we're a resource and it's something they can use for free and any time they wish. Graham Hull studied archaeology at Reading University in England and worked for five years with Thames Valley Archaeological Services or TVAS. He moved to Ireland in the year 2000 and established sister company TVAS Ireland with colleague Kate Taylor. The company has provided archaeological services on major infrastructural projects in Clare, including the N18 Ennis Bypass, and have also undertaken work for the Clare Museum, including a dig at Derry Boy near Crusheen. John Ratkin from the museum approached me and asked me, because we'd met and spoke before, he'd asked me if I had any idea of where we might find famine period settlement that we could archaeologically excavate because John had this dearth of material from that period in the museum so he was hoping to find more artifacts but also to create more stories and introduce local people and those people who weren't perhaps trained as archaeologists into an archaeological excavation so to extend knowledge and to extend understanding of that period going into a site like that you're confident there's going to be something there the issue is finding it certainly i knew i knew that there was there were houses there there were buildings there so there were definitely structures i wasn't particularly confident that there would be a lot of artifacts and that might have been my assumptions about the famine period Everyone was dreadfully poor and material objects might have been very scarce. But we were actually very surprised to find that there was quite a lot of archaeological material there finds. There was quite a lot of pottery, obviously broken pottery, quite a lot of bottle glass. There was no window glass. There was some animal bone, surprisingly from a horse. It was just a few bones from a horse. And then, excitingly, we found two shoes. In the first season, in 2019, we found a leather shoe. And then again, when we came back to the site in 2022, on the other side of the pandemic, we found another shoe. They weren't a pair of shoes. The first shoe was a child's shoe. It was, I think, a size five in a child's size. So for someone probably six, seven, eight years old, it's a heavily worn shoe. It was in pieces but it had seemed as if it had been hidden. And when I say hidden, 
I mean that it was found in a deposit that probably derived from the roof. So the roof of the building probably collapsed and the shoe had been placed or hidden in the roof. So that was very exciting. That particular project in Derry Boy near Crushing, what's involved in going in there? What's the procedure for excavating and investigating there? I suppose the very first thing you need to do is to get the landowner's permission. Obviously ask the landowner. Then I would need to apply for a license to excavate from the National Monument Service, the authority that gives permission to excavate in Ireland. And then obviously assemble the team, so advertise who would like to come, and we actually had to limit the numbers because so many people wanted to come. Then we had to think about things like welfare. So it's in the middle of nowhere, it's in the middle of the woods, so we need to get a toilet in there, we need to get a canteen in there. Luckily nowadays there are these mobile tow-along canteens with all the welfare facilities, so we got all that together. And then the actual doing the archaeology, initially it involved a lot of vegetation clearance, so essentially a lot of glorified gardening, of cutting back vegetation, taking back trees, pulling off earth. And then we get into the archaeological stage. So we're actually inside a building. We've got a stone building that's maybe, I don't know, as big as most people's kitchens, maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 feet wide by about the same across. And then we would just trowel off the topsoil carefully, looking for finds, artefacts, pieces of glass, pieces of china, whatever else there might be, animal bone. So, Graeme, you're not assuming that the artefact could be deep down, it could be close to the surface. Absolutely. I mean, especially in a relatively modern context like a, 19th, a mid-19th century house, which wouldn't have the time passed to build up a lot of soil over it. So the artefacts could be very close to the surface, and in fact they were. And aside from the shoes, anything of significance found at Derry Boy? Yes, on the very last day, we fell, one of the volunteers found a silver groat. A groat is a four pence piece, like an old penny's four pence piece, and it's dated 1846. So we were looking at the famine period of those last years of the 1840s and we found a coin dated 1846. It's made of silver, it's heavily corroded, but it's not particularly worn out. So it suggests to me that it was quite new when it was lost, it wasn't worn down. So probably the coin was placed just after 1846. I would like to think that it might have been put there to bring good luck and wealth to the family that were living there, thinking that an agricultural labourer perhaps was paid about two shillings and sixpence to about three shillings a week in the middle of the 19th century. So it's quite a large superstitious investment, if that's what it was. I was speaking to another archaeologist about it and she'd suggested that the very poorest of society in the 1840s, perhaps in rural areas, perhaps wouldn't have used coins in the way that those in the towns would. So perhaps the, the object was seen more of as a, as a token and as a special status object rather than an actual coin that could be spent to buy things. Projects like that, how important are they that the public get to know what happened in that era, how people lived in that era, and that these artefacts will be seen now, of course, in the local museum? I think it's very important. I mean, for that period, particularly where there is this painful poignancy of that period, I think it's vital that people connect to that period. Also, archaeology and archaeological finds in general. I think the job of the archaeologist is very much a storyteller, is very much to find things 
but then to explain and to show what they found. There's, there's no point in finding things, keeping it to yourself, not telling anyone else. I think you know, the job of the archaeologist is indeed to let everybody else know what you found, because in many cases, it's the public purse that's actually paying for the employment of the archaeologists. So obviously the public demands and expects a return on their investment in archaeology. And that work you've done with the Clare Museum, are there other projects planned or do you hope that you might be able to collaborate again in the future? I would like to. I think it's a question of funding. It's, I mean, it was Creative Ireland who funded the last project, the, 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 the Dairy Boy, the Famine period house. There are a number of places in County Clare where archaeological excavation, very small scale intervention, would probably provide large scale information. Myself, my company and, and, and some colleagues independently did a volunteer archaeology excavation on the um, earthworks at Quinn Friary. And I don't know if you know, there are a whole series of very shallow, low earthen mounds and linear features in the fields in front of the Friary. We've assumed as archaeologists that these represent deserted settlement, a town or a village maybe an earlier iteration of Quinn Village. So I think it was in about 2016, 17, I think, something like that. Myself and a colleague, Joe McCurry, who lives over in um, Doolin, and who previously worked as an OPW guide at Quinn Friary, we got permission from the landowner and from OPW and from the National Monument Service to dig two very small test trenches. When I say small, I mean five metres long and maybe one metre wide. One of the trenches was targeted at what we expected to be the moat of the castle that predated the friary and indeed we found the moat. We didn't find any artefacts in it but we identified and proved that it was the moat of the castle. And then the other trench was targeted at what we suspected and it proved to be the case was probably a domestic dwelling, a house and part of an old trackway, a road metalled, like a stone surfaced road next to it. We got a grant from the Royal Irish Academy for a radiocarbon date, and that radiocarbon date, I think, produced a 15th century date. So in effect, what we've done from knowing that there was a field full of humps and bumps, we can then say these are the remains of houses that probably date from the 15th century. And then we used volunteers we advertised through the museum and through social media for people who had an interest in archaeology but may not have had any formal or academic training school children as well from the Quinn school so it was great to bring local people many of them were local people and enthusiastic people together and walk them through real archaeology coming up we'll meet a former keeper of irish antiquities at the national museum of ireland mary cahill who gave a talk in the clare museum recently on the muhan north horde also known as the great clare find Welcome back to Atlantic Tales. Today we're visiting the Clare Museum, which hosts talks on a regular basis on various topics, including archaeological finds in the county. Mary Cahill is former keeper of Irish antiquities at the National Museum of Ireland and is a leading expert on the Bronze Age in Europe. 
Since her retirement, Mary has continued her research into the Bronze Age and, in particular, prehistoric gold. Mary recently gave a talk in the Clare Museum on the Muhan North Hoard, also known as the Great Clare Find. But that's just one discovery she has researched in Clare. Well, I have researched finds in Clare. I have investigated some burial sites in the past. I have investigated individual finds, whether they may be stone axes or dugout canoes or whatever it may be. Um, when you work in the National Museum, you never know from one day to the other what the next telephone call person calling to the front desk or an email may bring and so you get to travel the country and to investigate finds of every type of every period but in terms of my own particular research area that developed when I went into the National Museum and when I was first asked by a former keeper to look at and describe some gold ornaments from the Bronze Age so that has been my kind of abiding research interest ever since and that is what has led me back to Clare all the time coming back to Clare for lots of very good gold reasons. From your own previous research what in particular stands out from County Clare? What has been found of significance in the county? Well there are in the late Bronze Age in particular, there are some really, really significant finds. In the first place we have the Muhan Hoard itself, which was found when the railway was being built from Limerick to Ennis in 1854. That is the biggest find of gold metalwork, of finished gold objects ever found in Ireland for a long time. It was the case that it was the biggest hoard ever found in Western Europe. It has lost that record, but still it retains this record of being the biggest find of gold ever found in Ireland. So those objects are made from cast and hammered bars of gold, and they take the form of hundreds of bracelets and an unusual type of collar. On the other hand, there are some other highly significant finds from County Clare, which are called gorgets. These are big gold collars and Clare is particularly well known for the finds from Gertine Ray and uh, Glen and Sheen in particular. And of course the Glen and Sheen collar has featured almost as an emblem of Ireland, you know, in terms of stamps as um, a gold mark in itself from the assay office. So these things from Clare, no more than Paul Nebrone, for example, and other important prehistoric sites, these are objects, not monuments, but nonetheless they are so emblematic of Clare is the way I would put it. What is the story of the Muhan Horde though? Because that of course was recently the subject of a talk that you gave here at the Clare Museum. What's the background to the Horde? Yes, well I should say I was absolutely delighted to have the opportunity to come to Clare again to give this talk. I have done it once or twice before and I've always learned something new anytime I've been in Clare. So I've been working on it for a few years to try and fill the gaps in this story. This is like a a detective cold case is the way I would describe it because so little was recorded at the time there are so many unknowns what happened was that at a particular point on the railway line during its construction somewhere between Ballykilty and south of Muhan, there are so many different accounts it's hard to be precise some workmen found this enormous hoard exactly what they found how they found it and where they found it as I said are still a little bit vague but what I have been trying to do, drawing on previous research, drawing on new research that I have done, another colleague of mine, John O'Neill, we've been trying to answer some of those questions. There are still many, many unknown questions. What's really interesting is the nature of the hoard itself, the amount 
of gold that was found. We don't know either the numbers or the exact weight, but we do know that after its discovery, when much of it was collected by a member of the Royal Irish Academy in Dublin from various jewellers shops in and around Dublin, maybe some from Limerick as well, that 11 pounds, 5 kilos of gold was exhibited at the Royal Irish Academy in June 1854. Almost certainly the hoard was considerably bigger than that, but a lot of it was lost, scattered and eventually, unfortunately, quite a lot of it was probably melted down as well. I've also been able to follow up on the stories of some of the finders. Three names were recorded, Gregan, Hannan and Corcoran and then the fourth finder his name isn't mentioned in any of the newspapers of the time but we believe that four people were involved so what's really fascinating to me is that both Daniel Gregan and Paddy Hannan found their way at different times to Australia and the Gregan family worked in the gold fields in Victoria and later went to New Zealand to follow discovery of gold in New Zealand as well and Paddy Hannan eventually found his way to Australia as well and he is actually recognised as the person who found the gold fields in the Kalgoorlie area of Western Australia. And in Kalgoorlie, to this day, there is a very strong recognition of his role. Um, There is also a sculpture to him. And I discovered the other day that he actually has his own wine if you don't mind. And Mary, nowadays, where is the collection? It's scattered around the place, isn't it? Well, yes. There was no National Museum at the time. There was no archaeological system. So it was up to the Royal Irish Academy to try and gather as much of the hoard as they could, but depended on them getting the funds from the government of the day through the Lord Lieutenant. So they did get a grant, but nonetheless, it took them some considerable time. And even at that, In 1856, they only managed to get 13 of the original pieces. At an earlier date, it so happened that another collector, the Earl of Enniskillen, had managed to collect some 13 bracelets, I think, which he then sold to the British Museum. Again, the full story of that, how that came about, isn't known. So, in the meantime, the National Museum has managed to acquire less than half a dozen original pieces, pieces that we can be certain came from the hoard. So the sum total at the moment, I think, of originals is about 35 or 6, something like that. Certainly absolutely no more than 40. And the rest, insofar as we can tell, were melted down. But Dr. Todd that I mentioned earlier was absolutely, I don't know, prescient is the word maybe, to have casts made of all the objects that he had gathered together for that meeting in the Academy in June 1854. So we have casts of a lot of the objects, but we'll never know exactly what it consisted of, neither, as I said already, the exact number or the weight. And the originals are there, of course, to be seen still in London and in Dublin. Unfortunately, none in County Clare. That's disappointing that something so significant and associated with Clare can't be appreciated by the people of Clare in Clare. Well, the number of original objects in Dublin in the National Museum is quite small, and they are part of one of the main exhibitions in Kildare Street, which is the Prehistoric Gold Exhibition. And we actually couldn't tell the whole story of Prehistoric Gold in Ireland without that part of the Muhan hoard. All I can say on the other hand is that the British Museum is very helpful, very cooperative when local museums make requests for loans and it's always available to Clare County Museum to ask the British Museum for a loan of the material that's in their care. We did have it in Dublin at one time uh, some years ago when the gold exhibition or opened originally. All the British Museum material was lent to us at that time for a period but then it had to go back. it is available. And from your own research, anything else in particular stand out for you from County Clare? Well, the things that stand out for me 
absolutely are the gorgets. The gorgets are absolutely the most extraordinary artefacts of, I think, the whole of the Irish Bronze Age in terms of gold. They are so skillfully made, they are so beautifully designed, they are so intricate, so complex. And again, that's a big question as to what they actually represent, what they are. That is another long story that would take me quite a while to go through and might be the subject of another talk maybe in the museum on another occasion. And how does Clare rate in terms of historical archaeological finds when you compare it to other counties? Well every single county in Ireland has a huge archaeological and historic uh, tradition and heritage without a doubt. Clare has more gold than any other county in Ireland even though there is not a scrap of natural gold to be found in Clare. So that's another very interesting question. Where did all this gold come from? All the mystery that surrounds the find and where it was found, we don't know. So we don't know whether there's more there, possibly. I would say that it is highly likely it was absolutely cleaned out in 1854 and that whatever else may survive at that spot, if we knew exactly where it was, whatever it will be, would be archaeological in nature, but it won't be gold. If you were to guess where it came from originally, what it's would you think? Somewhere close to Mohan Lake seems the most likely place. And who were the original owners or where did it originate from? Well, we can't say for certain, but you know, Mohan Hill Fort is only a stone's throw away. It's within sight. The builders of hill forts had to have control of both land and people in order to build those monuments to retain control over territory, over resources. So again, although we can't precisely put our finger on it, there has to be some connection between one and the other. Why such a collection was built up? Well, there has been a very long tradition right through prehistoric times, way back to deposit material in places, valuable material, whether bronze or gold, in places, insofar as we can tell, in many cases, with no intention of ever retrieving that material. Now, with the case of Mohan, it might be a little bit different. They may have just put it somewhere safe for, for, for safekeeping during some period of stress. But these are the sorts of questions that I have to say, uh, even after all these years <laughs> as an archaeologist, we still find those questions hard to answer. So something we're still working on.